working adequately. Can you hear me at the back? Clearly. Good. Uh, thank you, Joel, for your kind introduction, and thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure for me to be here in Maine. It's my first time in Maine, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, so, let's, let's be, is better? Okay, so maybe move it slightly. So, well, do you think we should turn up the volume slightly? How about, how about this? I think it's good now, is it? Yeah, yeah. in front, yeah. Should have chosen something different to wear. <laughs> but, uh, well, uh, I'll try and speak up also, so that will help. Um, so, um, 
This is a remarkable book. It's a manuscript, that is to say, a handwritten book, and it is written not on paper, but on parchment, or more specifically on vellum, a subtype of parchment made from calfskin. For this particular book, around 25 calves were needed. And those calves were presumably skipping about in Iceland towards the end of the 13th century. The text in this manuscript is written in ink, not calves blood, which is a common but totally false misunderstanding. <laughs> As misunderstandings usually are, I suppose. Um, uh, we have no surviving medieval Icelandic recipe for ink, but 17th century sources reveal that the, the Icelandic method of making ink involved boiling bear berries together with unripe willow branches, and uh, to this mixture was then added a black dye made from dark peat soil. The results were good. Ink in Icelandic manuscripts is usually highly durable, the writing often appears glossy, almost kind of in relief, and it is therefore easy on the eye. Quills for writing were made from feathers of large birds, such as ravens, geese, or swans. Um, one day, sometime at the beginning of the 14th century, an unknown scribe sat at his desk in an unknown place in Iceland, surrounded by his equipment, parchment, ink, quill, and a knife. He dipped the quill in the ink and began to write. So he began to write these words, Mörður hét maður, er kallaður var gía. Or as it reads in the latest English translation, there was a man named Mert, whose nickname was Skia. Thus begins the most famous of the sagas of Iceland, the Njáls saga. It's an account of dramatic events which, according to the saga, took place in Iceland in the period around the year 1000. We learn of the friends Gunnar and Njál, who live in the southern part of Iceland. They are different people. Njál is wise and very learned in the law customs of the fledgling Icelandic society. He is not the handsomest of men. <laughs> but on the other hand, I believe that casting directors for TV series on Vikings would bend over backwards to hire someone like Gunnar, tall, blonde, and broad-chested. <laughs> Gunnar goes abroad to acquire fame and fortune, as was customary for young men in Iceland. First in Norway, then on Viking raids in the Baltic, and finally at the court of King Harald Bluetooth in Denmark. Did you know that the wireless technology on your gadgets, phones and so forth, Bluetooth, is actually named after this king, and that the, the sign for it is a kind of a version of a runic uh, character? Anyway, so um, upon Gunnar's return to Iceland, he marries the gorgeous but rather hasty Hafjörd, and this is not a contemporary depiction, I hasten to add. Um, and they settle on Gunnar's farm, which is called Hlíðar Endi. The saga describes how Gunnar's success creates envy among his fellow men, and how Hafjörd's impudence only makes things worse. A series of run-ins with their neighbors follows, and the conflict escalates. It is Murd the Younger, Gunnar's kinsman, who is the main instigator. Gunnar relies heavily on his friend Njál's cunning advice in these disputes, but he nevertheless ends up going against it, with the result that he is exiled, which in practice meant that he was uh, required to stay abroad for three years. And when he, when Gunnar shuns this verdict and decides to stay put in Iceland, it is not long before his enemies seek him out at his farm and kill him. After Gunnar's death, the saga concentrates on Njál and his family, the wife Bergthora, their sons Skapjevin, Helgi, and Grim, 
and Kauri, their son-in-law, who literally sails into the story when the brothers, the sons of Njal, are Viking raiding Scotland. Kauri comes from the Hebrides, the islands west of Scotland. Like Gunnar before them, uh, the brothers, the sons of Njal, become embroiled in a conflict with people they are related to, and it's again Morg who is fanning the flames. Attempts are made to resolve the conflict in a peaceful way through settlements, but to no avail. The climax of the saga describes how Njal and his family are burnt inside their farm, Bergfosquot. Kauri, however, manages to escape from the fire and he sets about avenging for the killing of the family. His quest for revenge takes him abroad to Scotland and to Ireland where he participates in the Battle of Clonsarf on Good Friday, 1014, according to the saga. And he finally travels all the way to Rome to seek absolution for his sins. The saga ends by describing how Cowley returns to Iceland and is reconciled with Thlorsig, the leader of the arsonists. In this crude summary of the saga, I have in no way managed to do justice to its narrative scope and art history. So I would not be surprised if some of you simply shrugged and thought, so what? What kind of, is this supposed to be a literary masterpiece? Story about some neighbors who fight it out amongst themselves somewhere <coughs> in rural Iceland? Yet, if we take a look at other types of medieval literature, we discover that the sagas with their description of events purport, purported to have taken place in 10th century Iceland are unique. They are unique in terms of the subject matter and the society they describe, in terms of the language they are written in, and in terms of their narrative technique and style. Uh, the sagas of Icelanders uh, were written down in the 13th and the 14th century. At that time, a lot of literature is also being produced on the European continent. In France, chivalric romances blossomed. In Germany, people write large-scale chronicles, which aim to sketch the entire history of mankind and also chronicle about local princes. Monastic literature is ubiquitous. Saints' lives in particular, literature meant to edify people and inspire them to follow the example of holy men and women. If one compares the sagas of Icelanders to these continental texts, one is struck by the absence of kings, princes, and nobility in the sagas. Granted, we do meet kings in the sagas. Remember Gunnar meeting King Harald Bluetooth in Knjalsaga. But the society the sagas describe in Iceland doesn't operate with a king or any other overlord. There is no royal court with courtly etiquette, such as, as we see in French medieval literature, for instance. There are farmers. Farmers who feud over land, over women, over inheritance. In their society, where there is no central power in the form of a king, honor is valued above anything else. An individual's honor, as well as that of the family or kin. And the mechanism of feud is activated when somebody feels that his or her honor has been insulted. The sagas describe how disputes are kindled, how they play out in the Icelandic landscape, how people exact violence and react to violence, and how the society strives to reconcile the warring sides. The individual saga is typically set within a relatively small district in Iceland. It often begins with a prelude of sorts, which recounts how a group of people, a family typically, decide, decides to emigrate from Norway and try their luck in Iceland, and how they settle in the area where the ev events of the saga then unfold. Many of the saga's main characters seem remarkably realistic to the modern reader. They are people like you and me, even though they live in a society that is alien to us. It's hard to point to anything similar in European literature from the same period. The language is also what sets the sagas apart. 
for they are composed in Icelandic, or more specifically in Old Norse, the language that was common for Norway, Iceland, and the Faroes in the High Middle Ages. Elsewhere in Europe, Latin was the preferred literary language, although gradually we see vernacular literature manifesting itself. We have Dante in Florence, born in 1265, and of course, Geoffrey Chaucer in England, born in 1343. It is possible to see the sagas of Icelanders as a counterpart to the works of these writers, but there is a palpable difference in that we do not know the names of those who wrote the sagas. These narratives grew out of a culture where storytelling was highly valued, but where ideas about the individual as an author or as a creative force had not yet taken hold. The scribes who copied the sagas uh, in generation after generation didn't see any reason to specify who, was, who they were, <laughs> the copyists, or who was responsible for initially for such and such a saga. And in a couple of cases, there are even preserved two somewhat different versions of the same saga, one shorter, one longer, which goes to show that the text was in no way sacred one could change it and modify according to one's own taste or that of the intended audience. The narrative part of the sagas has sometimes been compared to the so-called magic realism of Latin American fiction. That is perhaps not entirely justified, but one can say nevertheless that uh, the sagas are partly characterized by the incorporation of supernatural events and beings into a narrative about ordinary people. The saga authors usually refrain from passing judgment on these people. They don't tell us that this self-centered so-and-so is a bad person and so-and-so is a good person. And what uh, these characters were thinking, we don't uh, we, we don't get to know either because we can't read their minds. They, we can only know what they say in their conversations with other characters. And uh, in the sagas also, it's worth mentioning, uh, verse often serves as a conduit for emotions. So if a character speaks a verse, he may express his feelings, which we otherwise wouldn't do. Um, but it's true of many of the characters in the sagas that actions speak louder than words. When they speak, saga characters often express themselves in, I think, what we would call maybe memorable one-liners. And I'm going to give you a short example, and I'm going to read a short passage from Yamsar just to give you a flavor of uh, these texts. And this is in English translation. Uh, this is early on in the saga where the wives of Gunnar and Njad are feuding and they are sending their servants off uh, to kill each other. And uh, Bergthora's servant is called, in this scene, is called Atli and the servant of Hafgerd, the wife of Gunnar, is called Kor. So, we are at Bergthor's court and here's a conversation that begins between Atli and Bergthora. Uh, his mistress. Atli asked Bergthora what work he should do that day. I've thought of a job for you, she said. Go and look for Kor until you find him, for you must kill him today if you want to do my will. That makes good sense, he said, <laughs> since both Kor and I are bad sorts. I'll go after him in such a way that one of us will die. Good luck to you, she said. You won't do this job for nothing. He went and got his weapons and horse and rode away. He rode up to Fljotsvid and met men there who were coming from Klidarendi, the farm of Gunnar and Hafgerd. They lived at Mörk in the east. They asked where Atli was headed and he said he was out riding to look for a workhorse. They said that that was a petty task for such a good worker. But it would be best for you to ask those who were on the move last night. And who are they? Killer Kor, Hapgerd's servant, left the sheeting just now, they said, and he's been up all night. I don't know if I dare to meet up with him, said Atli. He's got a bad temperament, and I'd best be warned by another man's woe. 
From the look in your eyes, they said, you seem anything but a card. And they directed him to where Paul was. He spurred his horse and rode hard, and when he came to Paul, he said, How is your pack horse work going? That's no business of yours, you foul wretch. <laughs> nor of anyone else from your place, said Paul. Atli said, you still have the hardest part of the job. With that, Atli thrust his spear and hit him in the waist. Paul swung his axe at him and missed, then fell off his horse and died at once. Atli rode until he met some of Hapia's workmen. Go up to the horse, he said, and take care of it. Paul fell off his back and he's dead. Did you kill him? They said. He answered, It will occur to Hapje that he didn't die all by himself. <laughs> so, um, it's maybe not a coincidence that the sagas have been compared to westerns. The style is economical, characterized by what is called parataxis, where you have a series of short sentences rather than long ones with a lot of subordinate clauses. All these things have contributed to the popularity of the sagas through the ages, with the result that the best of them, Njal Saga along with a few others, are counted among the highlights of world literature. Many have wondered how storytelling on such high level could have developed among people who only numbered about 50,000 souls and who in addition lived on an island situated in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. How come we don't have sagas or anything like it from Norway or from Denmark or from Scotland? There is no simple explanation for it, but we can try to illuminate a few points. The settlement of Iceland began in the late 9th, 9th century, and it is estimated that by the middle of the 10th century, the island was more or less fully settled. By that time, there were farms in all parts of the land, except in the interior highland, which remains uninhabited to this day. The population was mixed. There were people from Norway, most of the men came from there, and from Scotland, the Scottish island and islands, and from Ireland. It seems the majority of the women came from these places. Amongst this mixed population, there developed a culture of oral story storytelling, which must have been influenced by the wish and or the need to preserve and disseminate knowledge about the lands the settlers had left behind, as well as information about their arrival in the new country. Stories were also the medium through which people could preserve and spread practical information, for instance, on navigation and sea routes. This was important for the Vikings. From Iceland, people sailed to uncharted lands, first to Greenland, later also to North America, to the land the Vikings called Vinland. These journeys and events that happened along the way are among the subject matter of the saga of Eric the Red and the saga of the Greenlanders. And Icelanders were also interested in events that took place in their neighboring countries to the east, in the Faroe Islands, in Orkney, in Denmark and Norway. Yes, even as far as Constantinople. And nearly every district in Iceland got its saga. And these are not all of them, <laughs> but those are the ones that I found room for on the map. One can moreover see how sometimes the same characters appear in more than one saga, how the sagas in a way are interconnected, giving the impression that behind these written manifestations there lay a network of stories a kind of one big immanent saga. Now, Njal's saga has an unusually broad geographical scope, and some of its minor characters crop up in other sagas as uh, major main protagonists. Now, um, since the tape recorder had not yet been invented in the Middle Ages, this glorious oral culture of storytelling would inevitably have been lost forever had the Icelanders not been introduced to that earlier revolutionizing medium, the book. At the turn of the millennium, around the year 1000, when Iceland had only been settled for a few decades, Christianity was introduced to the country. 
With it came the first books, the Roman alphabet and the knowledge and skill of making books. And although this newfangled way of disseminating texts initially served the need and needs and the goals of the church, with the result that uh, the monasteries became among the most important centers of book production in the country, the new technique was soon also used to spread secular material in the vernacular language, initially laws and later on various types of literature, translations from Latin as well as indigenous sagas. But before we succumb to the temptation of thinking about the literary situation in medieval Iceland as a kind of a giant Xerox machine continually spouting all sorts of entertaining stuff, it's important to remember that it was quite expensive to produce a handwritten book on parchment. Remember that you needed 25 casts uh, uh, to produce a copy of Njálsa. It was therefore a huge investment to order a large manuscript with 13 sagas of Icelanders, for instance. When people decided to spend their wealth on such things, it was at least partly because such cultural activity gave them status in society. I hope uh, I have managed to show <laughs> that there are several factors that contributed to the remarkable literary activity which spawned the sagas of Icelanders. It's quite unique in our part of the world to have access to sources, almost contemporaneous sources, that describe how people arrive in virgin territory, settle it, and create a new society. In 1262, Iceland became formally a part of the Norwegian realm. In this period, this is to say the 13th and the 14th centuries, Icelanders, Faroese, and Norwegians spoke the same language, as I mentioned, more or less, and the market for Icelandic manuscripts therefore extended beyond Iceland. Iceland described exported manuscripts to Norway, and these favorable conditions contributed to the golden age of Icelandic manuscript production. The 14th century yielded the largest and most lavishly decorated uh, Icelandic manuscripts that are still extant. They bear witness to great craftsmanship and ambition, ambition on behalf of the scribes and their patrons. In the latter half of the 14th century, the language situation gradually changed. Icelandic and Norwegian were diverging more and more. It was becoming difficult for Norwegians, for Norwegians to read the texts copied by Icelandic scribes. And when in 1402, Iceland was hit by a plague which decimated a third of the population, which means also presumably one third of the country's scribes, uh, that was probably the final blow to the export of books. Gradually, Icelanders became the only people who knew and could read the old saga literature. And that situation would last more or less into the 17th century when Europe rediscovered Icelandic literature through Latin translations. But that's a different story, and one I'll return to briefly later on, but it's now time to turn back to Njálk saga and its manuscripts. I have been lucky in the last few years to have been working on a uh, research project involving the Njálsaga manuscripts, and I have been work working with uh, a number of wonderful people. Uh, I'm only going to mention uh, on the screen here are uh, the names of those uh, who uh, have contributed to some of the things that I am now about to talk about. So I wanted to mention them. Njálsaga is preserved in more than 60 manuscripts, which testifies to its popularity through the ages. About one third of these are parchment manuscripts, and most of those are medieval. The oldest manuscripts are dated to the beginning of the 14th century, while the youngest are from the 19th century. We're talking here about a history that spans more than 500 years. The saga was first printed in 1772, so the story of its transmission until that time is to be sought, is to be sought in manuscripts only. And we have to remember that today we only possess a fraction of all the manuscripts that 
were written in the course of time. It's always difficult to estimate how many books have been lost. They are lost, after all. But scholars generally reckon with about 5 to 10% survival rate. If that's correct, it means that more than 600 manuscripts of Njausala were produced. The loss and destruction of books is a sad topic. But we are lucky with Njaula. Njaula is the nickname for Njausala, which is much used in Iceland. So we're lucky with Njaula because unusually many early manuscripts of it have been preserved. The saga was probably composed around 1280, and we have three manuscripts that were written around 1300, so only a couple of decades after the first copy or copies. None of these three manuscripts are complete, however. Reykjavok, the one that you've already seen, has the fullest text. Look at the binding. It's not the original binding, but it's a traditional binding. That's how the medieval books were often bound. You can see that the gatherings, the choirs of the manuscript are fastened onto bands that are then fastened to the boards, the wooden boards. Uh, the next one, of the oldest ones, is called the Rauskinna, gray skin, gray codex. Because it has, it looks gray, the, the, the cover is made from seal skin. Notice the binding again. It is a so-called limp binding where the cords that hold the gatherings together are sewn directly into the cover, into the seal skin. It's quite a battered copy, this, isn't it? Um, the limp binding means that this manuscript is much easier to transport than Reykjavok with its wooden boards. So you can imagine this book kind of maybe for somebody who is traveling. In the 16th century, so more than 200 years after the manuscript was produced, this, this book, the manuscript had started to disintegrate. It had lost some leaves and other leaves were damaged, especially the corners. So somebody at that time, an owner perhaps, decided to embark on an extensive repairing program and make good the loss of text by copying the missing bits from another manuscript. And you can see how he dealt with the corners. You can see that he cut off the rotten corner, sewed on a new piece of parchment, and copied the text on it there. And it's a mark of how precious the, the manuscript was, was to, it, to this person who did it, that uh, he or she should have invested such time and effort in making it whole again. Now, the third one I'm going to show you is called Thormod's book and is now fragmentary. It only contains about 25% of the text, but it was a handsome volume in its time. It's written, as you will notice, in two columns, which was considered more prestigious compared to uh, the Rauskina, uh, which is in one, one column. Uh, as is the case with many of the medieval manuscripts, it's hard to know anything about the provenance and the history of the book until it comes into the hand of collect, uh, collector in the early modern period. This manuscript takes its name after a 17th century owner, Thormodur Thorvason, an Icelander who was a royal histor historiographer uh, for the Danish king. When we started looking close, more closely at this manuscript, we struck lucky because uh, we, uh, in its margins, we managed to find the name of an owner, Högnin Finnboarsson. And that's a rare name. And therefore, we were again lucky because we found a deed from 1595 where a young man by that name had witnessed the purchase of a piece of land in Vatnafjörður in northeast Iceland, um, and uh, we could also see from genealogical records that his mother was a certain Thorin Thorvardóttir. So we therefore wondered whether this part of Hagnes' marginalia referred to her. You can see, um, if I manage to see here, that he says uh, that the, the book was given to him by that lovely lady, and then we're missing a letter, we can't read it, but we have the rest of the name. 
And so this could be Thorin, but it could also be Jorun, because it so happens that Thorin, Hagen's mother, had a sister, and she was called Jorun. So we reckon that either of these wonderful women were responsible for giving this manuscript to Hagni. And this leads me to mention the fact that manuscripts were often handed down on the female side of the family. The men would inherit estates, the women liquid assets such as manuscripts. <laughs> so Thorwald's book must have been a lovely manuscript at one point, clearly written and with the occasional inhabited initial. This is my favorite and I love it so much that we have used it as uh, in the logo for a, an upcoming conference in the next, in next year, a big conference on the sagas. But um, there are no grand illuminations or decorations or pictures in this manuscript. In fact, such things are very rare in saga manuscripts. You find that kind of thing more in law books and, and such uh, 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 manuscripts. But there's one exception, uh, or we have an example of a Njála manuscript where you have lovely initials, and that's this one, uh, Kálva like a book. Uh, this manuscript contains a few illuminated initials, which although they cannot compete with top-notch illumination, nevertheless add to the prestigiousness of the manuscript. These four manuscripts that I have now briefly shown you uh, seem to have contained Njál saga only, no other text, and that's understandable because it's quite a long text. This one, on the other hand, uh, which I've shown you before, contains 13 sagas and Njála among them. So, um, hang on, I'm going to, yeah. So these are the five earliest Njála manuscripts, but there are fragments preserved of another file manuscripts from the same time. We're talking about the first part of the 14th century. That's a lot and indicates that the saga was popular from the start. People were prepared to invest in having it copied. And I have tried to kind of point out that these manuscripts are all different. We have a manuscript in a limp binding, we have another in wooden boards, we have manuscripts where Njála is the only text and we have a manuscript like this one where Njála is only one of 13 texts. So the artifacts, the, the physical uh, books are different, but what about the text? Uh, are the differences in the text of the saga also between manuscripts? And the answer is yes, there are. The most obvious difference lies in the varying number of stanzas of poetry that the text contains. I mentioned earlier how, how in the sagas poetry serves as the conduit for the character's feelings sometimes, so if a character is allowed to speak a verse, we are more likely to know his or her mind. We get a more nuanced picture of his or her feelings. It matters, therefore, how many stanzas the text includes, for the inclusion or omission of a stanza may shape characterization and tweak nuances in the narrative. Now, our friend Rekebog has the largest number of verses, but the interesting thing is that they are copied variously within the main text, in the margins, and at the end of the manuscript. So in a case like this, here you see how there are verses in the margin, you can see, uh, they're written around. Uh, and if, if you have a manuscript like this, the person who is reading the manuscript, perhaps to an audience, can choose whether to keep to the prose or whether to add a verse from the margin. We have to think about it also in terms of performance. Those of you who have read Njalsa will know that although the many threads of the narrative are beautifully brought together, the reader may get a bit confused and even tired, I dare say bored, by the detailed and sometimes repetitive descriptions of the legal wranglings at the assembly, the Althingi. It goes on and on. <laughs> and the kind of... Uh, boredom that we sometimes <coughs> feel, we modern day readers, uh, we are not the only ones. Because the scribe who around 1400 wrote the manuscript that we now call the Svinsbok, clearly thought these legalistic passages needed trimming. 
So he skipped some sections. So in, this, in these cases, in the cases of the dancer, the verb included, and also in the, in the case of Swinsburg, where you find the trimming of the kind of boring passages, we see how the saga is being molded more or less from the beginning of the manuscript transmission. So even though the chain of the events remains the same and the outcome of the central feud is always the burning of Miao's farm, there are subtle differences in how the text is presented. Now, sometimes uh, scribes become, become bolder and more invasive. I mentioned how in the sagas, the narrator, the narrative voice doesn't pass judgment on characters. But in this manuscript, Otabo, manuscript written around 1460, the scribe cannot refrain from letting us know what he thinks of some of the characters. Um, he is describing how the enemies of Gunnar come to his farm and he adds Gaikusinus, whole sons, when he is describing him. And we have a similar uh, thing happening in another uh, manuscript from a similar time. Uh, in Miao Saga, one of the things that happen is that there are traveling women who are kind of spreading gossip. They are spreading news, some would say gossip, from one farm to the other. And uh, in most manuscripts, this is just described quite neutrally. But in, in, in the second example on this slide, uh, you see that the scribe has added an epithet. So uh, he says, Wonder Welt der Evil Vagabonds. Um, so they pass, they, they let their feelings about the characters be known, these scribes. Um, now, uh, I mentioned earlier that in the 17th century, the sagas were rediscovered outside Iceland. In Southern Europe, the Renaissance had brought with it interest in classical art and literature, and in the countries of Northern Europe, learned men also began to take interest in the long forgotten history of their own countries. In Scandinavia, scholars became aware of Icelandic historical sources, two works written in Latin by Icelanders, first and foremost by Arngrimur Jonsson, the learned. This fueled interest in the sagas and Icelandic manuscripts were again in demand, as were people who could read them. The 17th century therefore sees a dramatic increase in the production of manuscripts. Scribes in Iceland would write copies for scholars abroad, but they would also write for their own use, for they were not untouched by the growing enthusiasm for this literature. And this manuscript here is a good example of a new type of manuscripts that we be begin to see at this time. It was written by the Reverend Ketil Jörnsson, who was born in 1603. Uh, Ketil's manuscript is a copy of a now lost medieval codex, so it's quite valuable for us <coughs> of Njausara. But as you can see, Ketil adds stuff in the margins and between the lines. The added bits are variant readings from another Njaula manuscript, one that you now know, namely Kalvalekebok, this one. So Kjetit obviously had access to at least two medieval manuscripts of Njausara, and the fact that he bothered to record variant readings shows a scholarly approach to the text. This is a mark of the time. Kjetit's grandson was Árni Magnússon, the great philologist and manuscript collect collector who would take the philological aspirations of his grandfather so much further. Árni, he, Árni, collected hundreds of Icelandic manuscripts, including several of the oldest Njála manuscripts. The antiquarian interest of the 17th and 18th centuries paved the way for printed editions of the sagas, and the first edition uh, of Njála appeared in 1772, based on three manuscripts from Árni Magnússon's collection, so that his collecting work made 
in fact, this edition possible. As you can see from the preface, uh, which is, you can see from the fact that the preface there on the left-hand side is written in Latin, such editions were made for scholars, for the learned, and not for the common man in Iceland. So Icelanders continued to produce manuscripts for their own consumption, even after, uh, even after the saga had been printed. I have to find a paper that I'm momentarily lost, but I will find it, I'm sure. Yeah, here he is. So, Icelanders would continue to copy sagas, and this wonderful manuscript here was written by Guðlaugur Magnússon, a young farm worker in Iceland in the early 1870s. Guðlaugur not only copied the saga, he added color illustrations to it, 21 in all, as you see. See Gunnar and Njadver, <coughs> maybe not the, well, we would say like saga-like uh, costumes, but there you are. Uh, soon after, and I have another lovely picture here. Uh, these are uh, the, these are the sons of Njad. You can see Stakien there on the right with his axe. Menacing. <laughs> The scribe, Rudelöver, emigrated to Winnipeg in Canada, leaving the manuscript with his brother in Iceland, and his brother was also a prolific scribe of sagas. I wonder whether Rudelöver wouldn't have wanted to bring this book with him. The emigres uh, that went from Iceland to North America often brought with them manuscripts. They couldn't take much with them because they very often took manuscripts. But as it happens, another frag a fragment of another Niaula manuscript from the hands of these brothers found its way to America. This is a photograph of a title page that resurfaced in Seattle last year and was given to our institute. It's inside a plastic thingy and our conservator hasn't yet dealt with it, so the picture is not very good, but at least you see it. Uh, and, and from, from the uh, title page, we surmise that it was in all likelihood copied from a printed edition of 1844. So even though better editions started to appear, people still copied. But these two 19th century manuscripts are the last representatives of the long manuscript tradition of Njálsaga. By the end of the 19th century, really cheap editions started to appear, allowing people to satisfy their need for uh, Njálsaga by buying a copy rather than write it themselves. Um, I read somewhere that um, judging by the number of sold copies, every American household was likely to own a book by Stephen King. <laughs> So this was sort of the case with the Njálsaga. You had to have a Njála in the home. So if you couldn't buy it, you wrote it yourself. Um, I don't know whether there are manuscripts of Stephen King, but they're very long novels, aren't they? So it's quite a job. Um, so I'm going to leave you with the ending, the last words of Njálsaga in the hands of some of the scribes that kept this text alive. And that is how we end the saga. Thank you very much. Sagas of, uh, yeah, um, in the late Middle Ages, I'll begin there, uh, a new 
new genre uh, appears in, in Icelandic literature, namely uh, Rimur, which is a kind of a series of epic poetry that are often based on prose sagas. And this became hugely popular, and a lot of uh, romances were turned into sets of Rimur like that. Interestingly, this doesn't happen very much with the sagas of Icelanders. There are a couple of Rimur from Njálsaga, but nothing what you would expect maybe for such a, a popular text. So it seems that people prefer Njálsaga uh, in the prose form rather than turned into uh, uh, Rimur. But uh, yeah, then later on, of course, and what's wonderful about the life of Njálsaga today is that it's been turned into um, radio drama, um, comic books, you know, graphic novels, um, and all sorts of things. I suppose like Stephen King is not true, <laughs> films and whatnot. So I, I begin to see more and more parallels between Stephen King and Elsa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.